You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's bow in prayer before we begin. Our Father, we love your word, and it is precious to us, and we pray that you might make it ever much more so. We pray that you would take the meditations of our heart and make them pleasing to you. Your word is more precious to us than gold or silver, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. In it we see light, and we know that in the unfolding of your word there is light and there is truth, and we pray that you would open our eyes to see that and make our hearts to delight in it. And may our time here be profitable to be used by you for the edification of the saints and the encouragement of our hearts, and of course, equipping us to do works of ministry. Be glorified here through your word and in our time and meditation together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in Ephesians, Ephesians, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're nowhere near Ephesians, though some of you might wish we were in Ephesians and not Ecclesiastes. We are not. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we have come now to verse 9 in working our way through this book, and we covered verses 4 to 8 last time we were together. Uh, verse 9 brings us to what is kind of the heart of the, of the theme of, the chap- of this chapter of Ecclesiastes, and the theme that we have been seeing developed all the way through this, uh, this chapter is the theme of companionship and loneliness and the blessings and benefits of friendship. And now we come to verse 9, which kind of focuses in on these proverbial statements, verses 9 through 12. And uh, we've seen, seen that in verses 1 to 3, we, we saw a man who is oppressed and he was lonely. He had no one to comfort him. In verses 4 to 8, we see the loneliness of a man who is isolated by his jealousy and another man who is isolated by his greed. He doesn't have dependent or heir, and he never asks himself, why am I working for all of these things? And then at the end of the chapter, verses 13 to 16, we see a king who is isolated in his kingdom by his inability to to receive wisdom and counsel from others, and eventually he is left alone. And then in the middle of this, 9 through 12, are these proverbial statements. This starts off with that statement in verse 9, two are better than one, and then Solomon kind of develops that thought for a few verses. We're going to look at at the rest of this chapter, actually, verses 9 through 16, we're going to see all of the the rest of this chapter, these two sections, 9 to 12 and 13 to 16. Uh, One of the questions that comes up is how or are these two these two chunks of passage related. How are these two paragraphs related? Some people don't see any relationship here. They see verses 9 to 12 as kind of a standalone set of Proverbs, and then they see verses 13 through 16 as sort of a standalone story that illustrates some truth. Um, I am of the opinion that these verses actually are connected. These, These two sections are connected. They are centered around well, first and foremost, this theme of loneliness versus isolation. So in verses 9 to 12, you have this explanation that two are better than one and illustrations of, of, that, exam, of that principle in real life. And then in verses 13 to 16, you kind of see a contrast that develops where you have a king who is surrounded by people who laud him and praise him and love him, but then eventually he is abandoned and he finds himself all alone as well. And so I think that there is both a a common theme here as well as a contrast that is built around this theme. And I think that it's intentional by Solomon in order to prove a point or to teach a lesson. You'll see what that is as we work our way through it. So that kind of catches us up to where we're at after we had to cancel church last Sunday and sort of sets the stage for where we're going in the the verses ahead. So let's pick it up at verse 9, which is the... uh, 
the, the statement that Solomon gives, and, and we will read together verses 9 through 12, and we'll sort of deal with that as a unit of thought, and then we'll move on to verses 13 to 16. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. And one of the first things that you notice about that passage of Scripture is its positive tone. Do you notice that? It's kind of uncharacteristic for Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one. And it is, it is as if Solomon has nothing bad to say about companionship at all. And we've almost come to the point in Ecclesiastes after hearing under the sun and vanity and emptiness that we expect that when Solomon says something positive that we kind of get ready for the other hand to take away what he just gave us, right? It's like he's setting us up for the hammer to fall on us. We almost expect to get to the end of verse 12 and have, have had, having had Solomon say, uh, two are better than one, and hear all the examples of how that works out in real life, and companionship is great, and friendship is great. We almost expect him to get to the end of verse 12 and then say, but you're going to die anyway and be left alone at the end in your grave. You're sitting in a single solitary coffin, so, and it's all vanity and striving after the wind. But Solomon doesn't do that. In fact, all the way through this book, I can't think of, off the top of my head right now that I'm, I'm trying to, I should have studied this, but I can't think of any place in Ecclesiastes where Solomon has anything bad to say about companionship. He talks about living life with the wife whom God has given to you and enjoying the benefits of family and friendship. Um, he, it talks about the benefits of companionship elsewhere in the book. It is almost as if friendship and companionship and partnership is for Solomon the one thing that made life under the sun bearable for him. This is an unequivocally positive assessment of life under the sun, this companionship. He has nothing bad to say about it. And you say, but at the end of verse 16, he says again, does he not? This too is vanity and striving after the wind. That's the end of verse 16. So it seems like he's back on to the bad news. But the end of verse 16 is describing the isolation of the king, not companionship and friendship. So he does return to the idea of vanity and striving after the wind and emptiness. But it is in describing the, the king who is isolated, who has nobody with him. That's what is vain and striving after the wind. But companionship, nothing but positive things to say about that. Now look at the statement in verse 9. The statement in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. And the language that is used there, uh, in the, I think one of the newer translations, the ESV says they have a better return or a good reward for their toil. Some of the old translations say they have a good reward for their labor. And it kind of seems to communicate the idea that what Solomon is describing here is a partnership in business. If you have two people who go into business together or they work together as co-laborers, that there is a better return for that. And so they get, they're going to end up, two people working together are going to end up making more money than just one person striving and working all by himself. And though the principle here would certainly apply to that in many instances, there is something to be said for having a partner in work or a partner in business because you can end up splitting the investment, splitting the, the risk, uh, splitting the work, and possibly end up producing far more than just one person could by himself. So there is something to be said for that. But Solomon's principle here is much broader than just a business partnership. It's much broader. Another way of putting it, in our context, we have a proverb that kind of expresses the same thing. We would say, many hands make for what? Light work. Many hands make for light work. And that's what Solomon is saying. That's the, sort of the general principle, that there is strength in numbers. There is a benefit to having more people involved in an, in an endeavor. And, and it's not just a reward as in financial benefit that comes from the work that Solomon has in mind, because the word reward could really, is, is more generally translated or better translated as success. And that's really the idea. 
that the, the, the people who join into an endeavor, there is greater potential for success in an endeavor when more than one people put their hand at that task than if just if one person does it alone. And this is a statement that is so obvious to us if we just stop and think about the ways in which we see this each and every day in our, in our lives. We see it all the time and we see it everywhere. Just cleaning up today after our worship service is done today, how much easier is it when five or six or 10 or 12 people all pitch in and we get it done in 15, 20 minutes? As opposed to if we just, all of us walked out of here and one person came in and did it all by himself. It would take far longer than obviously more people doing it, but it is not just that, it is not just that when you add groups of people together, add people together to a task, you, you get something that is greater than just the sum of its individual parts. It's exponentially greater. Uh, this happens in ministry all the time. How, how well would the children's ministry in our little church family here go? How well would that go if one person taught all the classes and did the music and did the snacks and set up for it and cleaned up afterwards? How well would that go? How productive would they be? Not nearly as productive as three or four or five or ten people all pitching in and doing that ministry together. The, the success of that endeavor is far greater. The fruit of it is far greater than just the individual components summed up and added up together. It's exponentially greater. Having four pastors in this church is not just four times better than having one. It's exponentially greater for the health of the church body to have four men who serve in that capacity than just one man who serves in that capacity. So the sum of the total is greater, the, the, the total is, is greater than the sum of the individual parts. And that's what Sardo Solomon is saying. There's many, mans, and many hands, not many mans, but many hands make for light work and that when you pitch in and throw your weight behind it as a group of people, there is a benefit and a blessing to that. Uh, the, the chance of success is far greater than just if one person did it themselves or if you had even a bunch of people who are all working individually by themselves as opposed to with one another. So two people are better than one. That is the general principle. But then Solomon gives us a number of illustrations, and these are illustrations from day-to-day -day life, and keep in mind, this is something that is so patently obvious to us that Solomon doesn't really have to defend it or explain it. He's giving us illustrations almost as if he's just reminding us of this foundational truth to life, that there is power and strength in numbers. And then he gives three illustrations in verses 10 through 12, three examples of this principle at work, and the one thing that all three of these examples have in common, the one thing that all three of them would be connected to is these are three things that you might expect to see or experience if you went on a journey in Middle Eastern culture. So these th three things are connected, and if you could put yourself in the, in the place of somebody who is going on a long journey, you can see that all three of these things are examples of something that you might encounter or experience if you were on a long journey. So the first one is that in, in the event of an accident or tragedy, two are better than one. Two are better than one in the event of an accident or tragedy, verse 10. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another one to lift him up. The possibility of falling, maybe off of a cliff or into a ditch or into a hole when traveling in that culture was extremely common. There was that danger was common, especially if you traveled at night in a time when they didn't have flashlights and you, you didn't just have a torch that you took with you or a headlamp or something like that. Traveling at night was horribly dangerous. And it was not uncommon for people to make their way along mountainsides or, or ravines or stuff such as that on paths that the, the ground might give way underneath or they might find themselves falling into a hole and not seeing a danger and falling prey to it. And Solomon gives a very simple example. If you're traveling by yourself and you fall off a cliff, you're going to wait until the next traveler comes by. 
You don't have a cell phone, you don't have a walkie-talkie, you can make a smoke signal, you break your leg or you break a hip, and you're going to lay there until somebody else walks by and you can hear them and you can shout for them. But if you're traveling with a companion, you have somebody who maybe he doesn't fall with you, and he can pull you up or lift you out or go for help. That's an obvious and simple example, right? The next one is in verse 11. Verse 11. Uh, let me find it. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. And how can one be warm alone? This is another thing that might be experienced by somebody who is traveling. In those days, they didn't stay in inns because inns or hotels, places like that, they had brothels. They didn't have hotels like we have them today. And so if you wanted to stay out of a place like that, you would stay in the home of somebody who would welcome you into their home, or you would more commonly sleep outside or under the stars or in a tent. And back in those days without down pillows and Gore-Tex sleeping bags and that were good to 30 below, if you traveled at any time of the year in desert climate, it gets really cold at night. It can be very cold. And so you, the only way to stay warm would be to have a traveling companion that you would sleep snuggle up next to. I can tell by the expression on some of your faces, you're thinking that seems very awkward, and it does in our culture, doesn't it? The idea, of, the, the idea of traveling with somebody and sleeping in the same bed with somebody else who is not your spouse is very awkward to us. We, we go into a hotel and you're traveling with another man, if you're a man or another woman, if you're a woman, you want two queen-size beds separated by as much distance as you can possibly get between the two of them, and if the hotel rooms were cheaper enough, we would want independent rooms. But in that culture, it wasn't like that. Um, that awkwardness comes to us partly because we have a highly sexualized and a highly homosexualized culture. And our response to that is an awkwardness at the thought of cuddling up next to another man lying in bed under a blanket to stay warm. In that culture, there was no such uh, awkwardness there. You just knew that if we sleep apart, we're going to freeze all night long, we're going to get a horrible sleep, we might as well cuddle up next to each other and share a blanket. And there was, that was no more awkward than deciding to split a meal and sit down and have a meal together. That's just the way that it was. And so that's the second example that Solomon gives. There's a third one in verse 12. And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. So two are better than one in a time, an event of a, of a tragedy or an accident. Two are better than one in a time of mutual need, like being cold at night. And two are better than one in the event of hostility or danger. If you're traveling alone, you're far more likely to be... Uh, come upon by robbers or thieves or somebody who might want to take advantage of you than if you traveled with other people. And this type of danger in that culture, in that environment, was so much greater than it is even today in, in our culture, other parts of the world, that is obviously still a danger, but not in, in our context or in our culture. So common was it that you remember Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan? He spoke about the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they beat him and stole his things and left him half dead. Remember that? This was a common occurrence in those days. It was a very, uh, a very likely thing to have happen because of the danger. And so that's what Solomon is referring to. A group of people is far less likely to attack another group of people, knowing that there's strength in numbers, than if they were to attack just one person who has the appearance of weakness. And so if you're traveling with people, you're far better, more safe in that context than you are traveling alone. Just simple, common sense, everyday illustrations of this, and we understand uh, what Solomon is saying. Now look at the end of verse 12. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. I want to pause here on that statement for just a second because that statement in that verse has suffered more abuse than probably any other verse in the book of Ecclesiastes. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. What is Solomon describing there? First, let me tell you how the verse has been abused, the abuses of this. This is almost, this is almost fun. In fact, it is fun. I'll confess that. 
the Jews used to say that this three-strand cord, well, first of all, early Christians, let's start with the early Christians. Early Christians in the first few centuries of the early church used to say that the three-strand cord was the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you have three persons who are one God, you have three strands that are one cord. See what I did that? See how clever that was, a little illustration of the Trinity? You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and when those three work together in concert, nothing can stop them. That is a three-strand cord that is not quickly broken. The Jews used to say that the three strands were knowledge of the scriptures, knowledge of the Mishnah, which was the rabbinic writings, the Jewish rabbinic writings, and right conduct. Knowledge of the scriptures, knowledge of the Jewish writings, and proper conduct. And if you had these three things, you knew the scriptures, you knew the Jewish commentaries, and you lived right, that was a three-strand cord that was not quickly broken. Uh, some early Christians used to say that these were the cardinal virtues, faith, hope, and love. And that if you had those three things in your life, that was a cord that is not quickly broken. And it is not uncommon to hear this verse quoted at marriage conferences or even at weddings, read at wedding ceremonies, because everybody knows that the three-strand cord is a man and a woman and God. Now, a man and a woman on their own, that's a strand that can be quickly broken. But you put God in that mix, and you have a mix for a healthy, successful, powerful, and strong marriage, man, a woman, and God, three strands. Of course, if God is a triune God, then that's actually three more strands, isn't it? So that'd be like five strands altogether, but that doesn't quite work. So what do we do with that? But probably the worst and most egregious abuse of this passage, and the funnest, was something that I saw in a YouTube video um, by Bob Larson. Now, for those of you who don't know, for those of you who know Bob Larson, you're already chuckling, and, and rightly so. For those of you who don't know Bob Larson, he is a, he is a radio personality. He's an author, uh, Christian... Uh, I'd say Christian apologist, but I would have to use that term in the loosest possible meaning. He's a spiritual warfare expert and exorcist. And so there are videos online where you can see Bob Larson casting out demons, supposedly. And so a few months ago, a couple years ago now, Justin and I were preparing to do a radio show on, on exorcisms and binding Satan. And we thought, let's look up one of Bob Larson's exorcism videos just for yucks. We'll, we'll watch it, kind of get ourselves in the mood. And so there was a, a scene, a particular video where Bob Larson was doing an exorcism of a woman who was apparently demon-possessed. And, of course, he had this big metal cross, because you can't do an exorcism without a big metal cross, right? And it had the long leather strands hanging off that you would put around your neck like a good luck charm to, keep the, to ward off evil spirits. So he was holding this big metal cross up and shoving it in this woman's face. And, of course, holding his big, thick, leather-bound King James-only Bible in the other hand. And he was saying to this demon, I bind you in the name of Jesus. I bind you with the three-strand cord of Ecclesiastes 4.12. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says that the three-strand cord is not quickly broken, so I bind you with the three-strand cord. <laughs> wow. Bippity-boppity-bound. You just, you just sound a magic incantation, and you bind Satan. Imagine if he had only bound the devil with a two-strand cord. <laughs> that would have been a mistake, right? Because we all know that the devil can get out of the two-strand cord, and a one-strand cord, he breaks those like overcooked spaghetti. Those are easy. But the three-strand cord of Ecclesiastes 4.12, you bind the devil with the three-strand cord, and that one is not quickly severed. No, just nonsense. Is Solomon describing marriage? Is Solomon describing the Trinity? Is Solomon describing the rope that you use to bind Satan? And by the way, we don't do exorcisms, and we don't bind Satan. Is Solomon describing the rope that we use to bind Satan? He's not at all. You just know that there are young, impressionable minds who are watching that video. And when he said that, they were thinking to themselves, that's the secret. I didn't use the three-strand cord. 
I should have bound Satan with a three-strand cord. That's why he keeps getting loose in all of my confrontations with the demonic. Solomon's not describing any of that. We have a, a way of saying this in our own day. There's strength in numbers. That's all Solomon's saying. There's nothing sacrosanct about the number two. If two is better than one, three is even better than what? Three is better than two. And if you have a chance to engage in something with four people and, and, and do an endeavor with four people, you're far more likely to have success with four people than with three, or, and better than three is better than two, and two is better than one. That's all Solomon is saying. It has nothing to do with binding Satan or some magical cord, and it's definitely not something you should use at a marriage conference. This is not talking about marriage. Look, I could just as easily say the three-strand cord is offense and defense and special teams. That's what you need to have a good, strong football team. See, all I have done there is I have just made this verse describe what? A philosophy for building a good, strong football team. You need an offense and a defense and a special team. Because if you only have offense and defense and no special teams, you can't win championships with a strong offense and a weak team. You need all three of these in place. All of those examples that I gave you of abusing the text are examples where they take a meaning that is foreign to the text and cram it into the text of Scripture to try and make that text of Scripture say something that it does not say. There is strength in numbers. That's how Solomon wraps it all up. Two are better than one, yes, and three are better than two. And here are all the examples of that, and here's how we know this to be the case. That's all Solomon is saying. All right, so now there, th that is the principle of the passage, but there are applications to that passage. So does this passage apply to marriage? It does apply to marriage. He's not describing marriage here. He's describing a principle. Which principle, then, we can translate into marriage, if we would like to say, that a husband and a wife, when they are both on the same page, engaged in the, the same activities with the same goals, and they are striving together, united toward one purpose, there is success there, a better success than if both parents are off doing their own things, separated from one another, each of them pursuing different goals. There are a principle here that applies to business, it does. There's principles here that apply to ministry, it does. There is strength in numbers, and it is better to be with somebody than it is to be alone. That's the principle. And it certainly applies to our life as a church, does it not? This, the greatest example of the truth of this passage is the church of Jesus Christ. Each of us are saved individually, but we are put together corporately into a body that is greater than the sum of its individual parts. And we, as this body of believers, are only a small part, a small fraction, and a small expression of the body of Christ that exists all over the world. And when we are saved individually, we are put into a body of believers where we pray together and we serve together and we love one another together and we bear one another's burdens and we worship together and we fellowship together and we serve the Lord together and we exercise our gifts in service to one another. That is the expression of this commonality that we have in the church, this unity that we have in the church where we are all together living our lives together as a, as a people, as a group. And individual Christians who think, I don't need the church, and I don't need to be part of that, or worship is just something that I do if nothing else comes up, and if it's convenient, and I can plug in maybe once in a while, I'll be there, but I'm not going to be really there. I'm part of those people, but I'm not really part of those people. That type of mentality, that rugged, sinful individualism that characterizes Western American Christianity is a detriment to the body of Christ and a poison to our own spiritual lives. When we think that we can live that way, being by ourselves, we'll kind of be loosely attached with a body of people, but not really part of it. We're only deluding ourselves in making ourselves think that we're actually part of something that we're not part of, when we're actually all alone. And that is poison, and it is destructive. It's destructive to church bodies. It's destructive to our spiritual lives. So that's the, that's the principle, and that's the application. Now, before we move on to the, the illustration of the story that is in verses 13 to 16, 
I want you to notice how much math is going on in this extended passage, actually beginning in verse 1. Uh, one commentary that I read said this is, this is God's math. There's all kinds of numbers that are being flipped around here, and I'm not sure if it's intentional by Solomon, but it's definitely worthy of just noticing. I'm not going to draw any doctrine out of it or application or three-strand court analogy for binding demons or anything like that, but I just want you to notice it. In verses 1 through 3, follow it, zero is better than one. It is better to have never been born than to be born and to see the evil activity that is done under the sun. Zero is better than one. In verses 4 to 8, one is better than two. Better one fist handful of rest than two fistful of striving after wind. One is better than two. And now in verses 10 to 12, 9 through 12, two are better than one and three is better than two. Zero is better than one, one is better than two, two is better than one, and three is better than two. That's the breakdown of everything we've seen so far in Ecclesiastes. Now, other than just smiling and noticing that it's there, that's all we can do. We're not going to build doctrine on it, but we're going to move on to the story in verses 13 to 16. So let's read together verses 13 to 16. Actually, let's just start with verse 13. We'll set this up, and then we'll work our way through those last few verses. Verse 13, a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who is no longer knows how to receive instruction. Now, I think what Solomon is doing there is having established that two are better than one, and here are all the illustrations of that. He is moving on to a story that illustrates, I won't say a weakness or a, 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 uh, it doesn't illustrate a contradiction to this, but it illustrates a danger that is to be avoided. Let's just say that. So in verse 13, we have a contrast of two people who enter into the story so far. Two people. We have an old, foolish king, and we have a poor, wise lad. Now, these two characters are contrasted in three ways on three different levels. First, they are contrasted because of they have different social status. One is poor, and one is a king. Kings are usually what? Rich. So this is two opposite ends of a spectrum between these two people. The, the one is poor, and the one is rich. There's a second contrast, and that is by age. The king is old, and this lad is young. And the word lad there is not used to refer to a teenager or an adolescent. It was just used to describe a young man, even somebody that was my age. And yeah, that was self-serving, but I needed that. So this is a young, a young lad. And then the third contrast is with, pertaining to their wisdom. One of them is wise, and one of them is foolish. Now, if you're reading this, and I want you to read this and hear this with Jewish ears, the young lad who is poor is wise, the old king who is rich is foolish. This is where the contrast sort of takes an unexpected turn. In ancient cultures, particularly in Jewish cultures, they associated wisdom with what? Age, not youth. So if you were listening to this with Jewish ears, immediately you, whoa, you kind of perk up and shake the microphone off your ear like that. You wake up and you say, now that's odd, because in our culture we associate age with wisdom, and youth with foolishness. And that's, I think, appropriate, is it not? We do it in our own world today, though not, not as much as in ancient cultures. There's something appropriate to understanding and, and true about understanding that people who have lived longer, who have made more mistakes, they've learned more lessons, they have experienced more, they know more, they are the wiser among us. And sometimes some of the young guns come along and they say, well, I know more than the guys with the gray hair. And I mean, after all, we have the internet and we're the smart generation. You chuckle because you realize that having the internet has not made us a smart generation, right? And if you doubt that, go out to lunch this afternoon to anywhere in town. And when the bill, when the check comes, pay for it in cash and don't give them exact change. 
Yeah? Bill comes to $18.76, give him a 20 and a penny. And watch the time-space continuum just come apart right in front of your eyes and you will realize the internet has not made us very smart. Yes, we have access to more information than ever before, but we are the dumbest collection of seven billion people that has ever set foot on the face of this planet. And that is no exaggeration because there is no connection at all between available knowledge and wisdom. Those are two totally different things. They're not even in the same realm. Having knowledge available does not make one wise. Wisdom is something you get by making bad decisions, making right decisions, and living life in the light of truth and reality as it is. Wisdom is a gift from God. Wise people act one way, foolish people act another way. So we associate wisdom with age and foolishness with youth. In our context here, it is the exact opposite. You have this young lad who is poor, but he's wise. And then you have a king who is old, and he's foolish. And what makes him foolish, according to the text? Look at verse 13. He no longer knows how to receive instruction. He's not teachable. He is a man who has isolated himself because of his position. He has isolated himself from counsel, from wisdom, from his advisors, and people come to him with information or instruction or counsel, and he no longer knows how to receive it. He is a man who has cut himself off from counsel, and so this makes him a foolish king, not because he doesn't have access to wisdom, but he doesn't appropriate that wisdom that he has access to. And scriptures talk about the danger of a foolish king who, who isolates himself from wise counsel. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in the abundance of counselors, there is victory. Proverbs 15, 22, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Proverbs 20, 18, prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. Proverbs 24, 6, for by wise guidance, you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors, there is victory. So this is an example of a king who has cut himself off from all of his counsel. And so he is a foolish man because he, he's not teachable. There's something to be said for young people who understand that they are young and they understand that they are fools. The young person who comes along and thinks that they know everything, thinks that they have all the answers, and they have nothing to learn from the older generation, that is the hallmark of foolishness and folly. And young person, if you don't think that you're foolish, that is evidence that you are foolish. Right? We need to know our limitations and we need to know our folly so that we might pursue wisdom in the fear of God. Now, verse 13 is the clearest verse out of this whole last section. The rest of this passage is chock full of questions, and a lot of this is unclear. Let me illustrate it for you. Verse 14, I'm gonna give you a list of questions. So you understand now we got the contrast of the two people, the king and the, the foolish, the, the wise lad. Verse 14, for he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. Now here are the questions. Who is the he who was born in the prison who became king? Is it the old foolish king, or is it the young wise lad who was born poor in the kingdom? And whose kingdom is being described here? The foolish king's kingdom, or the young lad's kingdom, the young lad who replaces the foolish king? Which one of these two men has this kingdom that he's describing? Does the young man born in prison come out of prison to become king over the kingdom in which he was born? Or is this young lad born in the kingdom of the old foolish king and come out of prison to replace the old foolish king? You see that? Now, it is completely, it is completely vague in the use of the pronouns. In fact, one of the commentaries that I read said this is characteristic Hebrew usage at its worst. 
In other words, Solomon could not have been more unclear as to what he is describing. And verse 15 just exacerbates the problem. I have seen all the living under the sun thrown to the side of the second lad who replaces him. Now, who's the second lad? Is this, we got two characters, right? We've got the old foolish king, we've got the young wise lad. Now there is a second lad. Now is the second lad, the first lad that we already talked about, the, the young wise lad? Is that the second lad? Is he second to the king? In other words, is the second described that one lad, or is this now a third character who has come into the story? We don't know that. There are, according to Tremper Longman, up to eight different ways that this passage has been cashed out. Now, I could go through all eight of these, I guess, if I wanted to take the time to dig them up. But we would get to the end of going through all eight of those and the pluses and minuses, and you would come up to me after the service, and you would say, I didn't need any more help falling asleep during that message than I already had, so you didn't need to go through all eight of those. Because in the end, we know what it is that Solomon is trying to say. The exact road by which he gets to that conclusion is a bit murky. So we don't understand exactly who all of these characters are, but we do understand the point that Solomon is making. And going through all eight of those options doesn't make his point any more clear. It's already clear. So here's the point, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you through what I think Solomon is describing. And here it is. I think that he is describing three characters, three characters in this story. First, you have the old foolish king. Second, you have the young poor lad who was born poor in this kingdom who ascends to take the place of the old foolish king, eventually, he becomes king, and then there is a second lad who comes along and he replaces the first lad who replaced the old foolish king. So Solomon is three characters into this story, and what do we see? We see a progression, don't we? We see one person who is a king who isolates himself from council. He is replaced by somebody else who has come up to take his place, and eventually there is a third king, a third young man, who comes along, and he takes that king's place. So what do we see in that passage? You see a series, a succession of people. One king ruling, and he passes away, and another king comes in to take his place. Eventually that king passes away, and another king comes in to take his place. Does that sound like Ecclesiastes? Right? The wind blows back and forth, and one generation comes, and another generation comes, and that monotony that we saw in chapter 1, I think that that's what Solomon is describing here. Now, some have questioned, does Solomon have in mind any particular individuals? And there are a couple of Old Testament stories that have similarities, though they don't fit the details of the passage exactly. For instance, some have suggested that Solomon is describing Joseph. Joseph was a man who was, though he wasn't born poor, he did come out of prison, did he not, to become, though not the king, he was a prince over Egypt. So he was exalted to a position of prominence, having come out of prison by the providence of God. And Solomon, uh, uh, Joseph rose up to take that position. But Joseph's, the details of Joseph's story don't fit this exactly, though there are similarities there. Some have suggested that what Solomon is describing is the progression of people that had come before him. You had Saul who ruled over, ruled over the nation of Israel. And did Saul end his reign a wise man or a fool? He was a fool. He was just as foolish and incalcitrant and unrepentant and unsubmissive to any of his counselors as any king you can imagine. Certainly just as incalcitrant and unrepentant as the king in this passage. But eventually Saul, in his folly, was replaced by a man who was born poor in Saul's kingdom. And who was that? That was David, born in Bethlehem. Eventually David was given the kingship and he became the king. And who would be the second lad then who comes along after David to take over the throne? That would be whom? That would be Solomon, would it not? Right. And how did Solomon end his reign? A wise man or a fool? With the exception of David, really we can't describe him as a foolish king or in his folly. We can never say that. There are a lot of similarities here between these three characters and Solomon, his father David, and Saul. 
But ultimately, we can't know for sure if that's what Solomon is describing since he doesn't attach names to it, though there are some similarities there. Look at verse 15. Sorry, verse uh, 16. There is no end to all the people who, uh, sorry, there's no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, again, verse 16 is unclear with all the pronouns. Who are they unhappy with? Who is it that's unhappy? Are they unhappy with the first king, or is this describing the second king, or is this describing the second lad who may or may not be the first lad that replaced the first king? You see how all the confusion just sort of mounts up the more Solomon goes into this? But what is he, what is he describing? What is, the, what is the ultimate point? The ultimate point is you have a king who's foolish, and he is replaced, and everybody throngs after the new guy. He's the, he's the fresh face He's got the fresh ideas. He's the guy who is the flavor of the month. He is so popular. And all of the people love him because he comes along and he promises us hope and change. And eventually we have no hope and he takes all our change. And then suddenly we realize that meet the new boss, it's the same as the old boss. And all of his popularity fades away and goes to the second lad who replaces him. And the second lad comes along and guess what? He is popular and his approval ratings are at an all-time high. And he makes his promises. But eventually, what happens? Approval rating goes down. People become discontent with him and leave him for the next new flavor of the month who comes along. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, it's the life that we live, is it not? This is life under the sun. That's what Solomon is describing. And I think that the point, now how does this contrast with verses 9 to 12? Verses 9 to 12 are the benefits of companionship and friendship. Two are better than one. You say, well, if two are better than one and three is better than two, how much better is a million people that stand before you, that you lead, who love you and sing your praises and adore you? How much better is that even than only having three or two? But here's the danger with this, and this is where we get the warning the warning is we ought not to confuse popularity with partnership. We ought not to confuse celebrity status, which a king has for a brief moment, because that, that popularity and that fame are fleeting. Don't confuse that with friendship. They're not the same. It is better to have two people who are close friends than a million people who love you, because you can be as hot and as popular as the latest and greatest celebrity and be all alone and get to the end of your life and even be king in the land, the rich king in the land, and still be all by yourself with no friends. You can have a million people who love you and have no friends. So don't confuse the popularity with friendship because these things are not the same. Don't think to yourself, if two are better than one, that certainly the king is in the best position ever. No, because it's lonely at the top. And those millions of people who are singing the praise of that person this week will be calling for their blood the next week. Can you think of an example of somebody who was praised and lauded and said, Hail the, the King of Israel one week, and by that next week's end, they were cru crying, Crucify him, crucify him. Right? How fickle the crowd is. This week's hot latest band that's all the rage is next week's classic, and the week after that, they're on the oldie station, and by the end of the month, we're all saying, What was that band who sang the song about the, you remember that? We don't remember their name. How many hot young quarterbacks this year will be backing up somebody next year? Right? For, for those of you who are older football fans, name Ryan Leaf. Sound familiar? For those of you who are younger, Colin Kaepernick, Johnny Menzel. Right? Do these names mean anything? They're the hot new rage today. And by next week, they're forgotten. And such is life. So don't confuse popularity 
with what is true friendship. Pursue the true friendship because two are better than one. Three is even better than two. And that's the wisdom that this passage offers us. So let's pray. Our Father, you are so gracious and kind to give us wisdom from your word, to make it available to us. And we pray that you would give us this wisdom. Help us never to be incalcitrant and unrepentant and unwise like the king in this passage. Help us never to confuse popularity with, with friendship and to cultivate those friendships. Thank you for the truth of your word and the warnings that it gives us. And we pray that you would do a work in our hearts, continue to give us a, a love for Jesus Christ and for all that he has done for us. And uh, for the, we thank you for the work of grace in our hearts that has made us to love the truth and to love your word. And we pray that you would continue that work of grace in our hearts in the weeks ahead. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.